16. And the, 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 the key text, I think, is this verse 6. The key text that concerns us tonight is this verse 6. The lines are falling unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Let's just bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the the Word of God. We thank you for the truth of your Word. We thank you for the, the learning we gain from your Word. And as we consider what you would have to say from your Word concerning our nation, our past, our present, and our future, we pray that we would hear thee speaking, that we would hear your voice calling us, Father, I pray the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Whenever the children of Israel went into the promised land, they were all given territory. And all the tribes, they had their allocated territory. And then within all the families of all of the tribes, they had their, their farms and their possessions. And each family had a, had a territory within the tribal territory. And that territory was really important. It was cherished. And it wasn't just about a piece of land that they bought. It was a piece of land God had given to them. God had brought them to this place, to this locality. And in generations to come, they would look back, not merely at the place where their father and their grandfather and the great-grandfather had worked and labored and lived before them, but they thought of this ground that God had given to them, this heritage. It was theirs. It was their birthright. And this is what this means in the verse 6. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. The very place that God had brought his people to. And of course, when you think of Israel as a whole, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land that God had given to them, a good land. And Israel were taught never to forget this. And indeed, they entered into serious trouble whenever they ceased to remember what God had done for them. It is no accident that we belong to the nation that we belong to. The Scripture says that God has set the the boundaries of the nations. And we tonight, in this part of the world, we consider ourselves British. That's how I consider myself. And it's something that I consider with, with great pride, not merely because of the land, but because I believe with all of my heart that God, in His sovereignty and in His providence, made me British. For God has set the boundaries of the nations. And we can look back to the Ulster Scots people that came here, and how they came from Scotland, and how they transplanted the Scottish Reformation here in Ulster. And they didn't only transplant the Scottish Reformation in Ulster, but they transplanted the Scottish Reformation in Ireland. And through Presbyterianism, God did a most amazing and remarkable work. And we can go back to Six Mile Water, 1625, the great and mighty work that God did through our ancestors. And we can look back at people that prayed over this land, people that preached in this land, people that did God's work in this land. And we can say the lines have fallen unto us in pleasant places. 
we have a goodly heritage. And it has been our tradition always to look uh, eastward across the Irish Sea and to London and to England and to Scotland. And the union that we are part of is the union really that arose out of the Protestant Reformation as England and Scotland came together and then eventually Ireland became part of that union. And I believe all of that has been providential. God has done a work in our nation on all kinds of levels, not only amongst churches and denominations, not only amongst families, but in the hierarchy of power and in the throne of Britain itself. This year, 2023, our nation witnessed something which had not been seen for almost 70 years, the coronation of a monarch. It's almost, it's just over a year since we said farewell to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, and what an amazing legacy she left, a woman of great devotion, a woman who loved God, a woman who spoke of Christ, who left a testimony. And now the United Kingdom has a king for the first time since the days of George the sixth. So let's just think a little bit about this and this coronation year. There was lots of comments made at the time of the coronation that this was a thousand years of history. In a sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's not true. It is true in the sense that there were Christian coronations of kings going back into antiquity. For example, 973 AD, Edgar was crowned as the first king of England, and he was crowned by Dunstan, Archbishop of Canterbury. There's a tradition of the archbishop crowning the king, a Christian ceremony. In Scotland, the tradition may go back further still to the monks at Scone who crowned the ancient kings upon the famous stone. And indeed, there are some records that the Irish missionary from Donegal, Columba, was the first to crown a king upon the stone of Scone. Aidan, the king of the Dalriada, a kingdom that straddled both sides of the Irish Sea. And there are lots of religious and symbolic theatre surrounding the coronation, and all that has developed over the centuries. However, something happened in the history of many of the nations of this world that caused those nations to move in a different direction from the United Kingdom. Republics crept in. The French had their revolution. In more recent years, well, we'll go back 100 years, but it's more recent than the French Revolution, the Russians had their revolution. And it just seemed that history was moving away from monarchy, moving away from a hereditary monarchy. And if we were to start a nation from scratch today, if we were to start a nation from scratch, we would not choose hereditary monarchy. How on earth would you choose somebody and their children and their children and their children and their children would all 
with the head of state. How, how would you do such a thing? And whenever the United States of America, whenever they famed their famous constitution, well, hereditary monarchy was never going to be considered. And so it is intriguing that in this age where a republic was seen as a symbol of freedom, a symbol of advancement, that Britain kept its monarchy, kept its kings and its queens, its hereditary monarchy. It seems a total anachronism, and yet it's something that baffles, intrigues, mystifies. And even in this 21st century, Republicans in, in Britain, they struggle to gain traction. The crowds that greet the royals on their big occasions are, are something politicians can only dream of. And our late queen, she symbolized this so perfectly as prime ministers came and went. She continued to be there as that stabilizing force in the midst of it all. So the British monarchy survived. It didn't just survive, but it did very well. And not only did the British monarchy do well, but Britain did extremely well under monarchy. When nation after nation were toppling their monarchs and bloody revolutions, Britain remained stable with her monarchy, and Britain progressed. Britain didn't just progress, but Britain became one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. Spread good governance everywhere. Laid the seeds of democracy in many, many nations. And we live in an age today when these liberals, as they're called, they, they want to despise empire. And they want to relegate to the dustbin of the past the great achievements of our nation, which God enabled our nation to achieve in days gone by. But we must never forget something. Where the ships went and where the British soldiers went, the missionaries went. And the gospel was planted in nation after nation. And God used the British Empire for good. Not only in a, in a social sense, but also in a spiritual sense. And after the soldiers left, and after those nations gained their independence, the gospel remained. John Howard, the former Prime Minister of Australia, said recently, and raised a few eyebrows when he said it. I wouldn't use the term, but this is how he put it. He said, Australia was very lucky that the British came and were the colonizers. Australia wasn't lucky, it was providential. That's how I would put it. He said, not that they were, that is, the British were perfect by any means, but they were infinitely more successful and beneficent colonizers than other European countries. Britain's colonies did better than the colonies of other European countries. Why was that? And I would argue it was because of the, the Christian Protestant heritage at the heart of Britain. And yes, some people, they like to talk about slavery. And yes, slavery was an evil blight upon the history of the world and upon the history of Britain as well. But it was the Christian influence in Britain that saw the end of slavery and led the world in that as well. The big question is, how did the British crown evolve into the 
beloved and stabilizing institution that is at the heart of our national affairs. It wasn't because of the fanfares. It wasn't because of the trumpets. It wasn't because of the jewels and the gold and the diadems and the ceremonies. All those other great monarchies had all of that, and yet they crumbled. There must be another reason why Britain's monarchy did well. When Charles III received his crown this year, he did so in a manner totally unlike the last King Charles, Charles II. Charles II believed that the monarch had absolute power. He believed the monarch could act as if he were God. It was a doctrine known as the divine right of kings. The monarch was God. That's how Charles II acted. And then he came up against a man called Oliver Cromwell and he lost his head. Charles I lost his head. That was Charles II's father. And then Charles II continued to act like his father. And eventually that dynasty crumbled and King William came to power. And Charles III, he received his crown very differently. He received his crown as a constitutional monarch. So where did this idea of constitutional monarchy come from? Well, it really arose as a result of this Williamite revolution, the Williamite settlement. Every British king or queen since 1688 has been crowned according to the Williamite settlement. And that's not a thousand years of history. That's a few hundred years of history. And it was this Williamite settlement that changed everything, that stabilized Britain, that cemented and consolidated our Protestant heritage, that enabled the lines to fall out in pleasant places. It is a most noble thing to remember the reign of the little Dutch Calvinist. He was five foot six, and his English bride, who had Puritan values, Mary II. She was five foot ten. But between the two of them, there were giants in the faith who did a remarkable work that this country continues to benefit from to the present. So let's just try and understand, just for a little moment, what the Williamite settlement was all about. So we had Charles I, he went against Parliament, caused a civil war. He was beheaded. England had no monarch in Scotland, no monarch for a period of time. William Oliver Cromwell reigned. And then after Cromwell died, monarchy came back. You had Charles II. He didn't do a very good job at all. He acted as if he was God. He persecuted the Scottish Covenanters. He persecuted the gospel preachers in England. And then his brother took over and he was James II. And James II was a Roman Catholic, and he was the first Roman Catholic monarch since Mary II, since Mary I. And James II, he did some things which raised huge alarm bells. And one of the things he did was he tried to dispense with Parliament. He tried to say he could rule without Parliament. He could rule without the consent of the people. That was a very dangerous thing. And there was other aspects to his reign as well, and you can read about it in the book, and we'll not 
just get into that now. But as a consequence of that, England asked for the Prince of Orange, who was the Protestant leader in Europe, to come and to be their king, and for his wife Mary to be their queen. And Mary was English, and she was part of the English royal family. And the two of them came, and there was a revolution. It was a bloodless revolution. There was no wars fought in England, but there was battles fought here in Ireland to enable that revolution to be successful. And the Battle of the Boyne was one of those battles. So whenever William and Mary came to the throne, they were asked by Parliament to accept the Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights is one of the most important pieces of legislation we have in our country. It was one of the first pieces of legislation guaranteeing human rights in the history of the world. The Bill of Rights enabled parliaments to be free. The Bill of Rights enabled people to speak freely without fear of persecution, freedom of speech. The Bill of Rights enabled the press to write without fear, freedom of the press. The Bill of Rights gave people a right to petition the government, to criticize the government without fear of being imprisoned. And before William died, he agreed to elections to the commons every three years. Now, he still had power to call parliaments and to dismiss parliaments. He still had power to refuse legislation. So it wasn't quite the same as we have it today. But the modern system was evolving to what we would have today, and we can begin to recognize modern parliamentary democracy as a result of this Williamite settlement, and it all rose directly out of the Protestant Reformation. Now, one of the key aspects of this settlement, and something that should be of special interest to us, was the protection of the Protestant succession. The throne of Britain is a Protestant throne, and this remains binding to the present. As a faithful Protestant, the king must promise before God to preserve the true profession of the gospel. Those are key words in the vows that the monarch must make. He's a faithful Protestant. He had to say that. And he had to say before God that he will preserve the true profession of the gospel. Therefore, the Williamite settlement ensures that the throne of this United Kingdom must be Christian and Protestant. Our nation isn't founded on secular principles. The United States of America, for all the great work that nation has done, was founded on secular principles. France was founded on secular principles. But our nation was founded by Reformation Protestantism, and that gives us a place of special and unique favor amongst all countries of the world. But the question we come to now is, does it really matter? Does what happened in the past really matter? Because our nation has forsaken God. Our nation acts as if all of these vows, they're really pageantry, but does it really make any difference? Are these things not mere formalities? A meaningless gesture in a secular world. Now, to understand the relevance of all of this, we need to understand the British crown, what the British crown is. The British crown lies at the very head of the British system of government. For example, Parliament can only meet but by the consent of the crown. And whilst Parliament is sovereign, the power remains with the crown. 
The crown has devolved that power to the Parliament. When soldiers take their vow of allegiance, it is not to Parliament or to the government of the day. It is to the crown, because the crown represents the government of the nation. The leading courts in our nation are crown courts. The crown, therefore, represents something very important in the government of our nation. And then there is this idea of a covenant. When King Charles III swore that he would uphold the true profession of the gospel, he did not take the vow for himself. Because under a constitutional monarchy, he must sign whatever comes his way from the legislature. He didn't take the vow for himself. He took the vow for every government and for every prime minister that he would preside over. A covenant was made before God for all of his governments. Therefore, even in this secular world, the British government is under a binding covenant to uphold the principles of God's Word in their governing of the nation. Not that just, that's not just me saying that. The Prime Minister, as he then was, John Major, he said this. He replied to Dr. Paisley, who, of course, is our former moderator. Dear brother in the Lord, he's with Christ today. At that time, he was MP for North Antrim. He asked a question of the Prime Minister in 1996. This was what John Major said. The coronation oath is indeed regarded as a solemn undertaking by the sovereign, which is binding throughout her reign. Ministers would not advise Her Majesty to sign into law any provision which contradicted her oath. We read that and we say, wow, because that's exactly what the government has done time and time and time again. And yet, legally, the government has done wrong, knowingly has done wrong in so doing. Successive British governments have introduced abortion, decriminalized homosexuality, made divorce easier. They've weakened the sanctity of marriage. They've redefined marriage under law to include gay marriage. They have shown scant regard for the ordinance of the Lord's Day. A host of other depravities that I would not have the time nor the inclination to enumerate. So when the monarch is presented by Parliament to consent to a piece of immoral legislation that may, for example, mean, as we're seeing now, that school children will be taught LGBTQ behaviors as something that is normal, that abortion is a legitimate way to dispose of children, whenever Parliament does that and presents that to the Crown, they are doing something totally unconstitutional. They are acting in defiance of the vows that were taken before God, in the presence of God, and before witnesses at the coronation. That's serious business. Serious business. And that should make us tremble for the future of our nation. Belonging to a nation whose fathers believe that the realm must be crowned, the realm must be governed according to Scripture, it's an amazing and incredible privilege. But... It's a solemn thing because there is accountability. And what the Bill of Rights does and what the Williamite Settlement does 
it forces our government to be accountable not to the courts of the land but to the judge of all the earth. There's two things that are going to happen one or other. There's going to be judgment there's going to be repentance. And if there is not repentance there's going to be judgment. Psalm 9 verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. And our nation that has forgotten God is on a collision course with the wrath of God. Our nation today is in decline. It's in decline. Our nation is in economic decline. Our nation is in military decline. Our nation is in decline as a force in the world. The decline has been constant throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. We cannot deny that. Indeed, the whole of the Western world is in decline. It's not just a problem that Britain has, a problem the Western alliance has. With the rising of China in the East, it's on the news every day. There's challenges coming our way. But the reason for this decline is that we are in spiritual and moral decline. That's the real problem. Whenever Britain faced her great crises in the 20th century, World War I, World War II, Britain was a God-fearing nation. The king called the nation to prayer. It wasn't pluralistic, trans-religious prayer with every man praying to his own God. It was prayer to the great God of Israel who reveals himself through the person of Jesus Christ. But whenever we think of the king's coronation, we had the Roman Catholic cardinal taking part. That was the first since the Reformation. And then we had this nod in the direction of other faiths, other religions, which is the nod. But then whenever the service was held in Scotland in July, it was more than a nod. At the National Service of Thanksgiving and Dedication at St. Giles Cathedral, Edinburgh, where John Knox once thundered, you not only had the Roman Catholic Archbishop taking part, you had non-Christian religious leaders offering prayer. They were praying to their Hindu and Buddhist deities. The Jewish rabbi was taking part. The chief imam was taking part. A leading humanist was even participating. It was this kind of fraternizing with false religion that drew the wrath of God upon Israel. We need to read the signs. And such departures from the biblical understanding of true faith and worship, they're symptomatic of a deeper malaise that's going on in the very soul of the nation. And where do we lay the blame for this? We lay it at the churches. We lay it at the door of churches that have abandoned God's Word, that no longer believe that this Word is the literal Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, that God created the heavens and the earth in, in six literal days, that Daniel was in the lion's den, that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, that Jesus Christ rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and He's going to come to judge the world at the last day, that men and women must be born again of the Spirit of God or they'll be lost forever. There's been an abandonment of all of that, and our nation is suffering as a result. That's the real problem. 
And in these days of forgetting God, judgment is coming. But I think we can still have hope. We have a little illustration of, of George Whitfield there. George Whitfield preached as a young man just a few decades, really, after the Williamite Revelation. And just a few years had passed, and England was in spiritual darkness. He would often criticize somebody called John Tillotson. He got himself into serious trouble for criticizing Tillotson because Tillotson was William and Mary's first Archbishop of Canterbury. And he had Protestant values, that's true, but he wasn't particularly evangelical. And a lot of the errors that had crept into the Church of England, Whitfield would lay it at the door of Tillotson's. Many people didn't like it. Whitfield just preached away, preached the gospel. He didn't preach for popularity, he preached for God, and he won thousands of souls for Christ. And he saw a revival. And in that great awakening that spread across these islands and spread across to America as well, of which Wesley was uh, such an important part. And when Methodism sprang up, God did something amazing, even in days of darkness. The light can shine again. Jack read from Second Chronicles 34. The Bible had been neglected. Josiah had come to the throne. The Bible was discovered. When they discovered the Bible, they discovered, as we are discovering tonight, that wrath is coming. And so they consulted. They consulted with this woman called Huldah, the prophetess. She must have been a mighty woman of God. And she brought this word, said, yes, judgment is coming. But because the king has humbled himself, because he rent his clothes, because he wept, I have heard you. And Josiah saw revival. And yes, judgment would come in the future. But Josiah still would see revival. And as you trace the history of Israel from the days of David and Solomon right through until the Babylonian captivity, the trend seemed to be in a downward direction, but there were these spikes upwards. Hezekiah, that was a spike. Josiah, that was a spike. God was doing something. Who's to say that God cannot do something in our day, in this land in which we live, that God can revive his work again? We need to be encouraged. Is the day of revival over? I don't believe so. I believe this book is a book of revival. I believe God is a God of revival. Can the wilderness blossom as the rose? Can there be streams in the desert? Let's take another question. A question that young David asked whenever he came into the camp of Israel and all the warriors of Israel had fled before Goliath. He said, is there not a cause? And as we see the Goliaths of sin and secularism in our nation is... They're not a cause. With a simple slingshot, he took down the giant. And he took down the giant with five smooth stones. Revival is God's work, you know. It's not something that we can bring about. It's not something that we can accomplish. The wind bloweth where it listeth. God has set times to favor Zion. And we've been looking at revivals here in our prayer meetings over these past number of weeks. And I think one point we always need to make about revival is this, that we cannot be in revival all the time because whatever I read of revival, 
I, I realized that if the church was in revival all of the time, our health couldn't stick it, such as the, the work that, that goes on in people's hearts and lives and the power of the Holy Spirit. And life just stops. Life can't stop forever. People have to get back to their work. People can't sit in church all the time. But whenever there's revival, people can't leave God's house. God comes down. But these are important times because they lay a basis for a future work. And we are here today because of what God did in the past. If God had not done a work in 1859 during the days of Nicholson, we wouldn't be here today. So revival is so important for the future. And I heard a preacher say once, he said, we need to set our sails to catch the wind of the Spirit when he blows. And whenever revival comes, their churches are bypassed, congregations are bypassed, towns are bypassed. We need to ensure that when revival comes that we catch the wind. So like David, we need to go into the pouch and take up five smooth stones and keep firing them and use them to take down the enemy. We need to take the stone of gospel preaching. What this country needs is the preaching of the gospel. What we'll see of Ulster is the preaching of the gospel, the simple gospel that Jesus Christ saves the simple gospel that Whitfield preached over and over again. Indeed, it is said that whenever Whitfield was dying, he was suffering from acute asthma. He wore his body down. I am constantly ashamed whenever I read of George Whitfield and the work that man did for God, dying in his mid-50s, preaching every day since he was a very young man, both sides of the Atlantic, and he was staying in a minister's manse in America. And some people gathered into that manse to hear him preach. And he came to the top of the staircase. He could hardly speak. And the light was on the oil lamp. And he stood at the top of that staircase. That was his last pulpit. And he exhorted the people, you must be born again. And he went to his bed and he died. And when you read about his death, the gasping for air, it's humbling how that man was taken into the presence of God. He lived for the old gospel. It's the only thing that will save this land. We need to take up the stone of doctrinal truth. The church of Christ is to be faithful to doctrine. We need to build up our people in doctrine. We need to teach our young people doctrine. Church needs a doctrinal basis. Theology is important. Word of God is profitable. First of all, for doctrine, Paul said. So it's important that we are familiar with the doctrines of God's Word. We target the stone of protest. We must hold our society to account. We must call out sin where there is sin. We must do it lovingly. We must do it logically. But we must constantly stand by the unchanging Word of the unchanging God. We need the stone of prayer. We need more in our prayer meetings. We need to be praying more ourselves. The devil hates to see God's people praying. We need to be praying for souls. We need to be praying for the church. We need to be praying for our ministers and for our evangelists. And yes, we need to be praying for our king and for our government. So many sit back and they criticize people in politics and Christians in politics, but did you pray for them today? We need to be praying. Praying that God will work, that he will send a revival. And the final stone for the glory of God. It's not for us. Whatever we do, if we have an ambition just to give us a name, if we have an ambition for a church denomination or for a society or an organization, we'll fail. 
Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And is that not what's wrong with the evangelical church today? Like Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians, we can say the right things, we can have the right truths, we can have the right doctrines. We can stroke all our T's and dot all our I's. But in our hearts, we've left our first love. And the Lord said, because of that, he said, I'll remove the candlestick away. The light will not shine. I'll bypass you and do work somewhere else. And that's what happened. Judgment must begin in the house of God. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Write it upon every heart, we pray. Give us an enthusiasm for God and for the cause of God in these days. Lord, look with favor upon our dear nation. We thank you for the light that just shines in from the past. We can see it glimmering, and, and yet the lamp of God, it seems, is going out. Lord, set it on fire again. Bless our brother as he brings this meeting to a close. For Christ's sake, amen.